What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. But like with all other things, ushers adapt quickly. It's one thing I tried to teach them the art of the pivot. When life hands you lemons. Make lemonade. No. First you roll out a multimedia campaign to convince people lemons are incredibly scarce, which only works if you stockpile lemons, control the supply, then a, a media blitz. Lemons are the only way to say I love you, the must-have accessory for engagements or anniversaries. Roses are out. Lemons are in. Billboards that say she won't have sex with you unless you've got lemons. You cut the beers in on it. Limited edition lemon bracelets, yellow diamonds called lemon drops. You get Apple to call their new operating system OS Lemon. Little accent over the O. You charge 40% more for organic lemons, 50% more for conflict-free lemons. You pack the capital with lemon lobbyists. You get a Kardashian to suck a lemon wedge in a leaked sex tape. Timothy Chalamet wears lemon shoes at Cannes. Get a hashtag campaign. Something isn't cool or tight or awesome. No, it's lemon. Did you see that movie? Did you go to that concert? It was effing lemon. Billie Eilish. OMG. Hashtag lemon. You get Dr. Oz to recommend four lemons a day and a lemon suppository supplement to get rid of toxins because there is nothing scarier than toxins. Then you patent the seeds. You write a line of genetic code that makes lemons look just a little more like tits and you get a gene patent for the tit lemon DNA sequence. You cross pollinate. You get those seeds circulating in the wild. And then you sue the farmers for copyright infringement when that genetic code shows up on their land. Sit back, rake in the millions, and then when you're done and you've sold your lempire for a few billion dollars, then and only then you make some fucking lemonade. Welcome, everybody, to Aeon Bite. I hope you enjoyed that scene from Netflix's new show, Mike Flanagan's The Fall of the House of Usher, a great series. And that's a scene where the pharmaceutical <clears throat> tycoon is basically give, throw, opening up the curtain, showing how our society is engineered, how everything's done, and it definitely ties in with our theme tonight. Great series with Mike Flanagan. There's going to be a lot of philosophical, metaphysical uh, speculation. I mean, talk about hollow earth and demons and the Illuminati and this great show. So I highly advise you watch it. Mark Hamill plays an evil lawyer, the hitman of this tycoon, and actually actually acts for a change. Might be the first time in his career. And it's a great series, and it makes perfect sense how things are done. So, always happy to have Steven Snyder. Steven, thank you. What do you think of that intro? Isn't that how it's done, really? 
Oh, it was fabulous. It uh, definitely kind of invoked that whole scene from under the Silver Lake when uh, the protagonist is confronted with the uh, the piano player who subsequently informs him that he's the voice of his generation, his parents' generation, his grandparents' generation simultaneously. Yeah, that's a movie I really need to rewatch and I'd love to do a deep dive. Yeah, that's another movie that sort of exposes everything that's going on and I'm glad more of these are coming out more tapping into the unapologetic uh, gnosis of Kubrick and saying, here it is. <laughs> Do you have fluoride in your water, Mandrake? You know, that kind of cool stuff that we've been missing from cinema. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, what do you think? Are you going to make uh, lemonade? Or are you going to get filthy rich uh, engineering society and manipulating the crops and all that? Well, aren't you glad you played that today? <laughs> aren't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'll probably try it with Moondog statues, but I think it, lemons it would work much better. It's got the genetic element and all that stuff, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I immediately thought of diamonds when he was starting to talk about it. And then he comes up with the beers. <laughs> so let's see, they kind of did a little reveal there. Yeah, that's the way it works. It is the way to work, but I'm glad we've got researchers like Stephen and others who are sort of uh, exposing how this octopus, these eugenic program, this uh, archonic forces are are prevalent. And they're, uh, I don't know. What about you, Stephen? Because I was thinking today, I read your book, uh, which we'll be discussing tonight, and it's an amazing read. I I don't know what to say. The art. The book is The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, book one. And a lot of that a lot of this you talked about at the Astronosis Meet the Archons, but your book was such a huge uh, revelation. Do you do you get depressed when you do this research? Like, oh my God, we are screwed even more than I thought? Or how do you keep yourself positive? I mean, it's an odd thing, but I actually find um, a lot of the research to be invigorating. I mean, I guess like on a personal level, a lot of it sort of represented a uh, bit of a personal growth for myself because, I mean, it was very much a journey writing this thing. I mean, it was like three and a half years or something like that in the making. Um, but I, I talked to Alex Sakaris about this mm -hmm. uh, previously, about how I deal with a lot of this stuff. And especially after I started going to these captive nations conferences in DC for the victims of communist Memorial foundation. They put this on like every July and you get all these big poobahs from like the heritage foundation and the Atlantic council. Um, the one they had last year, actually, they had Madam Zelensky in there before she went to go meet with Joe Biden. So I'm, you know, very much the one guy sitting in the room who's not like an ex spook or like general or something like that. But it's like, on the one hand, these people are psychopaths. I mean, this is like blatantly obvious when you just sit into these conferences when they uh, are more free speaking freely amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. But it's like, oddly, that almost gave me hope because you can see in a lot of ways the disintegration of what they build is inevitable because there is this psychopathy that runs through everything. And it's not something that is conductive to building a stable foundation. And in an odd way, I just... I almost kind of came to where I pity these people. I mean, can you imagine what it's going through life, having this sort of hatred in your heart that you're constantly dealing with how you can destabilize this regime or that regime, sign off on this genocide or that? I mean, 
it's got to be hard to fucking sleep at night, to put it mildly with all of that. Yeah, or they just uh, they're on a lot of drugs. They've lost their humanity. Oh, I mean, the, they're that, miserable. Yeah. No, the one guy. Oh my gosh, I can't remember his name, but he was so coked out at this thing too. I mean, again, this is like where it's hysterical. I mean, this Heritage Foundation, all these, you know, neoliberal and neocon people there, and this guy is like so amped up. I mean, he's even doing the thing to his oh teeth, God. you know. <laughs> yeah, like right there in front of everyone, and I'm just like. Oh my gosh. See, I'm from Florida, so I know a cokehead when I seize one. But I mean, it was something to be old, man. Yeah, and their quest for immortality and their quest for power, they just become addicted and they start getting addicted to the weirdest shit we've talked about. Uh, not just drugs, but humans and other things. It's it's a horrible way to exist. And this show, uh, The Fall of the House of Usher, does that too. Everybody's miserable. You have the 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 public defendant the black guy in it and he ends up in the movie being like uh he seems like the victim but he wins in the end as you say recluse he's the one because he finds peace and they're just they're just destroy themselves they're so they're so miserable so it's yeah, a, it's I, incredible i really feel that this is like what's driving this whole just thirst for annihilation really that i think we're seeing unfolding geopolitically right yeah now. i think on That's some cool. level everybody's aware of just how warped just disgusting you know, our society has become and you know, no matter what they say i think they want it to end as much as anybody else <laughs> yeah it's nihilism that's what it leads to too much power too much addiction that's where it leads to and they try to open their stargates and they try to become immortal and they just everything just backfires because that's not the way for immortality or a higher state of consciousness but we all know this so and i miss alex's podcast i wish he'd come back but i understand uh, it's uh, it's not it's like it's, sometimes it's hard all this truth is hard it just break you down uh so for the audience good to see everybody already going into the chat room Please uh, keep your witticos out of it. Don't turn it into a chitico, or else Vance will uh, will come down and put you in with Han Solo frozen somewhere for a little bit. If you have any questions for Stephen, this is your time. Please use your super chat. Uh, you can do as little as a dollar. That way we can separate your question. And, of course, uh, we will get to your question. If Stephen's, of course, looking at the chat room and he decides he wants to pick a question, or pick on somebody, that's his choice. We This this show belongs to everybody. Other than that, well, Stephen, you said this book came out three years ago, and apparently since it's book one, you still have more research to bring, right? Even though this book is so chock full of data, it's it's incredible. And I love how you put fo footnotes at the bottom so I don't have to do this stupid end note. That, you know what I mean? You have to look at the back of the book and then come back to you. It's like everything is there, and it is just dense with red pills well it was it actually came out about a month ago but it took me about three and a half years to uh get this part of it finished and originally it was supposed to be one book that was going to kind of trace the origins of QAnon, and it subsequently became more ambitious i think when i was up to about two hundred thousand words i was like yeah this is it's got to be uh more than one book and then from there it was basically just trying to figure out how to divided into sections that would work effectively so 
the title was sort of a bit of a play on that, but the first book was going to be more of your kind of hard academic study of the history of Psy War. The second one was sort of going to get a little more woo-woo with the history of certain conspiracy theories, especially the satanic panic. And then the third one was the one that was really, really going to go out there, the whole shattering of reality thing. So it's uh, going to get even weirder as we uh, go on to this. Yeah. Well, bring it on, man. Bring it on. It's a, it's an excellent read. Everybody should have a copy because it's got all the data. And I learned so much more about many of these dark, shadowy figures. But it seems that uh, to start, it's about a great conjunction, right? Two points at time. Uh, or yeah, then Concrete was... Blonde write that song, Tomorrow Wendy, Two Points in Time Meet. Oh, man. I haven't thought about <laughs> Bringing in that 90s value. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. Uh, Well, yeah, that was one of the things that I started that I kind of picked up on when I had first started the book, because you had the great conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, One of the more significant ones occurred in uh, the early 17th century at the onset of Rosicrucianism. But also this unfolded at the same time the Westphalian peace was emerging after the Thirty Years' War. And for those of you unfamiliar, this is effectively where we get the modern nation state as we know it, modern conscript armies, all this other kind of stuff that we effectively associate with contemporary bureaucracy, if you will, right? So it was kind of fitting to me because the last great conjunction we had of this variety was in uh, 2020, right before the whole January 6th thing. And it certainly seems like the period that we are living in historically right now is witnessing the breakdown of the Westphalian piece of the nation state model. And we're in that kind of transitional period to something new again. So it seemed very fitting that we had these kind of conjunctions bookending it on top of everything else. And then effectively you had the Rosicrucian fervor. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the Q thing was somewhat similar to that. And just in general, the rise of conspiratainment sort of fueling all of this. So it was definitely a fascinating prospect to play with and something that I'm looking forward to developing more in the latter books. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you would say that the Rosicrucians were uh, a deep state creation like QAnon, counterintelligence, or what would you say with these two groups? Again, we have no sacred cows in the show. Oh, no. Well, I mean, with Rosicrucianism, I don't think that there actually was a Rosicrucian order, per se, uh, when the manifestos were released. And that, to me, is what is really fascinating about that, because I see the manifestos as really being a magical working unto themselves. And in the aftermath of this, you really had the rise of what we would think of as the more speculative version of Freemasonry of all these other esoteric orders. And many of them uh, were created because of the fire in the minds of men, so to speak, that the Rosicrucian manifestos generated. Um, but the Q thing, it's a little different because there does seem to have been some deep state players in there. But the main thing that really unites both of them, I think, is that effectively Q and the Rosicrucian manifestos were essentially games for the curious, the curioso, if you will. And that, I think, is a crucial aspect of all of this because it was a way to target uh, highly intelligent individuals and to try to get them into these different orders and things like that. So there's a lot of implications with that, and especially the whole use of uh, gamification and all of this is so crucial. Yeah, indeed. What do you mean by gamification? Well, I mean, we're seeing... 
I mean, we're increasingly seeing more of that in our society. And as I look at this more, this seems to be very much steeped in magic. Um, and especially when you get into more of the modern era with surrealism, because so much of surrealism was based upon uh, different games, things like the exquisite corpse that you could use to tap into the subconscious. And I think that's really the major advantage of gamemanship or gaming, because it can get you to bypass the conscious mind and to tap into the subconscious. It can eventually lead you to a state where, you know, the difference between the reality and the game world that you're living and is breaking down. I mean, you can just see that with the whole gamer culture and, um, you know, I mean, the amount of um, mental disorders. And so I don't mean to be offensive to gamers, by the way. It's just that um, there are a fair amount of uh, emotionally unstable people in that community um, to be respectful about that. But there's a lot that you could do with that and to further manipulate and more people's sense of reality for sure. Oh, for sure. Well, let's talk about, God, it's so hard. There's so many entry points. It's almost like I want to talk about, I would like to say, when, what went wrong or when things changed. But it seems it was post-war America. And of course, you and I have talked about my Elvis book, how people like Elvis and Philip K. Dick became teenagers in this brand new world and this brand new empire. And they were seeing things that history had never seen. And Obviously, they became very paranoid and reflected these things. But what happened after post-war? Is that when psychological warfare really became weaponized or was on steroids? I mean, what happened in the post-world that this became a reality where we can want to change reality for others? <laughs> well, I mean, it's difficult to say, but yeah, I think a lot of it was just the fact that there was so much resources being poured into this. I mean, obviously, psychological warfare wasn't a new thing. The British had already developed a lot with it. But I think the more I looked at this, the real game changer had to do with the rise of computers, of data mining, of predictive mm -hmm. modeling, and so forth, which is also a big reason why uh, gamification and that kind of thing is so important, because the games are a great way to compile data on individuals. But this was something that I really picked up when I was looking into uh, the legacy of General Edward Lansdale. So everybody knows about Lansdale and his feats with psychological warfare. Um, I mean, one of the more famous incidents of that was uh, in the counterinsurgency that he was directing in the Philippines. So he had some of his special operators capture um, some of the Huck rebels. He had their bodies drained of blood and puncture wounds put in the neck, and then the bodies were hung upside down so that the locals would think that vampires were uh, doing this. <laughs> yeah. So he was already looking at all of these different ways that you could weaponize spirituality. But going into the early 60s, he effectively became the head of what would have been the proto version of the Special Operations Command. And this had some profound implications. On the one hand, the military started to invest fortune, uh, having anthropologists, social scientists, and so forth research a lot of different occult practices, magical practices throughout the developing world. And then on the other hand, and this was something I was really shocked to discover, Lansdale was deeply involved in the creation of the ARPANET. Um, 
ARPA was really tied into the counterinsurgency programs that um, ARPA was running at the time, which for those of you unaware, that's what we now think of as DARPA. They added the D later on. But anyway, they had this whole thing called Project Agile, which the ARPANET was a part of, and they were researching all these other different counterinsurgency tactics. And the guy who headed this was a dude called William Goodell. And Goodell didn't report to anybody in the DARPA or in the ARPA hierarchy. He reported directly to Lansdale why he was running all this stuff out of the Office of Special Operations, right? And concurrently at the same time, you have the genesis of Phoenix being set up in Vietnam, which was very much modeled on Edward Lansdale's counterinsurgency program. So they create these uh, was it model hamlet projects or something like that, where they're going to create these villages and they're going to get all of the, um, the South Vietnamese people in there. And they're basically using these villages to data mine people they have all these censuses and surveys being done they're gathering all this information on the villagers and then they're feeding them into computers to try to develop predictive modeling so that they can ascertain who are going to be the insurgents in these communities and so forth and from there it just kind of ballooned more and more the army ran uh, what was known as project camelot where they were effectively compiling data from all of these different militaries around the world that the united states was theoretically aligned with so they could make predictive models and how our military would fare against them even though we were supposed to be allies and that kind of thing so this was a huge development because now you have this really formal scientific approach being taken to psychological warfare where you're trying to use uh, computers effectively to develop even more uh, me- even more devious means, I would say, to warp people's perception of reality. Oh, it's incredible reading your book and <clears throat> look at history. And it's, it's almost it's nefarious when you look at these individuals like Lansdale and the whole U.S. apparatus, because it's almost you had the, the Japanese Empire, right? And it was uh, oppressive and caused atrocities and all that. Then the Japanese Empire falls and we sort of take the we sort of jump in. But it's like we jumped in. So we not just for resources, but to make the entire of Asia sort of our laboratory. We're going to test on the Philippines and the Koreans. We're going to bring new weapons and see what the Vietnamese. I mean, it's it's pretty horrible, don't you think, Stephen, how we viewed that area of the world? Well, yeah, it was very much a laboratory, effectively. I mean, that's yeah. really what they were doing is uh, essentially developing a means of counterinsurgency that gradually the United States could, on the one hand, apply to the entire world and then, on the other hand, apply domestically which is very much what started to unfold going into the 1970s and really as far back as the late 60s. But yeah, I mean, this was very much uh, a process of refining all these techniques of taking things that we were learning on the one hand from the research that ARPA was doing with computers and also be remiss of not pointing out a lot of the stuff that was being developed by Project Artichoke, by MKUltra, and applying a lot of this stuff to counterinsurgency practices as well. Yeah, and it's interesting. Obviously, there's all these streams, even if they were, they kind of had to be underground after World War II, like eugenics and uh, other things. But I, I always enjoy, I love how you bring also Russian cosmism. <clears throat> and I saw it's very interesting about this movement, which really did influence the Bolsheviks, the Germans, the Americans. But I find it interesting this view that, hey, we can 
if we travel to space, we'll unlock the secrets of the universe. At the same time, they've had this added to, oh, but we can, if we unlock the secrets of the psyche, we'll also unlock the secrets of the universe. It's almost like that's very Gnostic, where whether you go in or out, you're going to reach the same thing, but well, also think, can be exploited. Well, I think in the case of the Russians, I mean, that was almost inevitable that it would tend towards Gnosticism. I mean, a lot of the uh, the Cosmos movement really did come out of the Orthodox Church. And I mean, I'm sure as you know, as well as I, uh, Gnosticism never really ended in Eastern Orthodoxy. No, no, I mean, no, there was, were movements to bring back Sophia in a lot of times. Yeah, very much. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely see the Russian variety of this as a continuation of that tradition. And, and again, it's also interesting because on the other ha hand in the West uh, with the whole Gnosisphere stuff, I mean, it was mainly developed by uh, Deschartes, who was a Jesuit. So a lot of this stuff was actually very much coming out of um, Christian worldview, ironically, and specifically from Orthodox and Catholic uh, sources there. But yeah, it's that's just one of the really fascinating things I find about Russian culture is uh, despite the best efforts of the Soviets, you did have effectively this mystical tradition that continued and mainly continued within their scientific community. Yeah. I mean, that's really why the Russians were never able to uh, totally suppress cosmetism or rather, um, you know, the whole Gnosisphere uh, ideology, because it was so widely embraced by many of their leading scientists during uh, the Cold well, first during World War II and then later going into the Cold War. And then um, you had sort of the concurrent amount of research going on with the Nazis, with the NRB and all this other stuff. And yeah, it's ultimately led into a lot of interesting lines of research with uh, psychic phenomenon and also potentially how the human brain could be manipulated. And it ultimately kind of plays into the whole notion of... Um, was it the uh, the electric universe, if you will, or something? I think that's the name of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but unfortunately, to understand the human mind, to uh, make us hackable animals, whatever you want to call it, you need human tests. And of course, your book has all these horrible experiments at Dachau. Of course, we've talked about how the Exorcist movie was just a CIA. I mean, you need human tests. You can't work it on apes or rats, and that's where the problem is. And that's what these bastards do, right? They'll find somebody and just try to dehumanize them, or they're on the other side of the world, or they're drug addicts or prostitutes, and, oh, they'll make great test subjects. I mean, that's – it's really horrible. I know. It's, it's a hard read. How about the bombarding of American embassy uh, by by the Russians uh, in, in in the past? And I'm sure that's happened many times in many places. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think they were aware that it was happening since the late 50s, if not the early 60s. And basically, we allowed it to continue for, yeah. I think, I mean, a good 10 or 12 years just to essentially see what would happen, more or less. <laughs> And I mean, this is that's like what's kind of ironic about that, because you had some pretty senior ambassadors who got cancer yeah. from that. You know, I mean, it, this wasn't even like plebs that were getting cancer from this. You oh actually had some big state officials there. So it, that makes it even more interesting. Where it's like, oh, let's, let's just see what's going on with that. Like, but yeah, this was, um, oh gosh, it wasn't the Moscow signal that came later. Um, oh yeah, no, it was the signal. And then you had the Russian woodpecker later. So yeah. <laughs> I've heard the woodpecker. Yeah, yeah, sure yeah. It's in your book. That also makes your book. 
Do you want to tell the audience about the woodpecker just real quick? Well, yeah, that was, um, and it's interesting to sort of take into light what the U.S. and the Soviets were both doing in this regard. But the woodpecker was uh, coming from the was the Douglas Station, uh, which was right next to Chernobyl, incidentally. Uh, <laughs> so uh, there's been a lot of speculation with the meltdown with that, whether or not they were trying to cover up, uh, you know, the woodpecker signal, what was that being done with it. but a lot of this played into the whole notion of psychotronic weapons and how you could use elf waves and so forth. And there's been, again, the ongoing kind of uh, theories as to what they were doing with this. Was this a some kind of a uh, covert form of mind control? Were they bombarding the U.S. with radiation from it? Or was there something maybe more practical to it? Um, I know one of the things that I kind of toyed with was the possibility that the station could have been used uh, to scramble nuclear warheads in the event of an exchange. And it seems like that this was a big part of what the Navy was doing with the concurrent project. Um, it was a project elf, I think is what it was called at one point. And then it went through a couple of different things, but we more or less sent, set up a station first in Wisconsin. And then I think they moved it to Michigan. Mm. Uh, that was very similar to what the Russians were doing with Dugaba. And these, you know, if you sort of look at like a map from the poles, I mean, they would basically be facing off almost directly against each other with the, uh, the North pole separating the two but again it kind of put these two stations at the forefront of whether or not there would be some kind of uh, nuclear exchange or possibly some kind of other uh, major weapon of mass destruction that we're not even aware of if uh, there actually was a conflict that broke out between the soviet union and the u.s so it's you know again something that is so fascinating when i was doing the research with this because there's just so much misinformation that's been put out about electromagnetic radiation, about how frequencies or microwaves can affect the human body. And it's even more fascinating with how the Russians and the U.S. have uh, taken different tracks with this. The Russians have generally uh, acknowledged that there's something to it on some level. Whereas the United States has really vigorously tried to dismiss any of these claims as being um, utter absurdities, even though we still continue to do a lot of research into this. And, you know, again, you, as you kind of alluded to, you're seeing this stuff heat up again with the whole Havana syndrome and all this other stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Woodpeckers. I'm going to bring up another one from the 90s, actually late 80s. Remember that song Woodpeckers from Mars by Faith No More? Yeah, no. uh, Stephen always gets my song. <laughs> I'm a bass too. player, so I got no faith no more. Uh, okay. <laughs> and uh, was there a harp in that can... song? <laughs> Get it? I don't know. It, it would be fitting. Yeah, yeah. A harp. <laughs> Angels don't play that harp, though. Yep. And that yes, was like a powerful was... transmitter. Harvest. This was, yeah, I mean, see, and that was the thing is this is the whole technology that later sort of served as the basis for the HARP facility in Alaska. Of course, the ELF uh, facility that they had in Wisconsin was kind of an early precursor to a lot of that. And again, it's interesting, too, that you see this stuff starting to ratchet up again uh, with essentially the new Cold War opening up. I mean, I think going back as far as 2014, there were reports that the woodpecker had been appearing again. Uh, and various radio signals and transmissions. So again, it's another kind of interesting development with all of this. Yeah, that would have that's that has to happen. It's the old Orwell. We've always been at war with Oceania. You need like a, a a boogeyman, right? A big bad guy. So then you can 
go ask for billions of dollars for your budget and get away with uh, tests that aren't exactly moral or at least uh, stretch the possibility, you know, the, the idea of morality. <clears throat> I mean, today, who do you think the United States is the main purveyor of this uh, alternative uh, psychological warfare these days? Or who else is in the game, Reckless? Well, I mean, the Russians have definitely done a good job at a lot of this stuff. But I mean, it's interesting to me because I don't subscribe to the notion uh, that, I mean, all these groups are together holding hands behind the scene and it's all an act. And that was like really something that was reinforced to me during this research, because really the United States and the Soviet Union were in quite an extraordinary position the Cold War in the sense that they had to redefine warfare because we had reached such a technological state that if the two powers actually went into a direct war, this would probably be the end of humanity as we know it. So you can't fight each other directly. So how do you have a conflict without directly confronting one another? And that was really what led to this whole system of counterinsurgency across the globe. Effectively, we were going to fight a war of attrition globally with the Soviet Union spanning decades to see who could sap each other resources fast enough. And it was one that we were able to win because of our economic system, but it had just a horrendous effect, obviously, on the uh, on society as a whole. And now we're into sort of a new phase of that where... It seems like, you know, and this is really what is concerning. Are we going to be able to uphold this gentleman's agreement going into the 21st century where the powers are going to avoid confrontation? And again, this is you look at what's happening right now in Israel and just the the real prospect that we might start using tactical nuclear weapons or something. That's coming next. That's coming next. And this is something that, I mean, the elites for all their faults back in the day in the cold war era, I mean, they understood that, you know, once you go down that path, things could escalate rapidly to a point that there's no turning back from. And in a lot of ways, that's even, you know, more of a problem now with all this. Everything is so computerized and what have you. Uh, I mean, you have all of these systems where there's just no humans at all involved in the decision making if something is triggered. So, yeah, I'm starting to think of uh, uh, Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, which was Elvis's favorite movie of all times. He could quote. But uh, remember that scene? Well, you know, the premiere loves a good surprise. The doomsday machine. <laughs> oh the, yeah yeah well see that's it's a good point you brought that up too they because... weren't that smart <laughs> oh yudi i like you to no, know i like you too i'm sorry the president of the united states talking to the premier <laughs> well it's a really it's such a great movie because in a lot of ways it's actually much closer to a documentary than many people realize and that was actually something that i was made painfully aware of when i was working on this book because there's certain lines in dr strangelove i'm thinking specifically the one george c scott uh, delivers where it's like what is it mr president i'm not saying we won't get our hair must but 10 to 12 million americans dead tops, tops. see the thing is this is basically what the Joint Chiefs of Staff were telling Kennedy in the meetings of state back then. I mean, I was just shocked to see this, but the Pentagon was gung-ho to launch a preemptive nuclear strike against the Soviet Union in 1963, at the end of 1963, after a quote-unquote period of heightened tension. 
And it gets really interesting with Dr. Strangelove because it was supposed to come out on November 22nd, 1963, which was obviously the day that Kennedy was assassinated. But assuming that Kennedy had lived, this would have come out theoretically right in the midst of the period of heightened tension, the maelstrom that the Pentagon was hoping for to start a nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. And this is, you know, again, sort of getting into the whole thing with conspiracy theories with this. This was a big thing that John Birch Society was really doing in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination, because they launched the original JFK conspiracy theory, which was that it actually was an operation directed by the Soviets from Moscow. Mm -hmm. And this was part of the reason why we did the Warren Commission, because the JBS had uh, raised enough doubt about this, about the possibility that Kennedy had been assassinated by the Soviets, that they felt the need to do the Warren Commission to try to put the kibosh on that. It was a very real possibility that that could have led to a nuclear exchange or later on some kind of uh, nuclear tactical nuclear weapons being used in Vietnam, because there was a later push to use nukes against the PRC um, in Vietnam mm. to ensure that we could invade uh, northern Vietnam without the Chinese intervening. Right. So a lot of this is being pushed by the John Birch Society. And this is actually where. Uh, Kubrick is so fascinating. This is actually something I'm going to get into in my um, presentation at Strange Realities uh, uh, coming up here in a couple of days in Nashville. But Kubrick actually seems to have been used by the Kennedy administration to leak to the public just how batshit insane the Pentagon had become at this point. Because, again, I mean, if you go back and look at this, I mean, General Ripper is clearly based on Curtis LeMay and yeah. um uh, General Walker, uh, General Lemonser is definitely a huge influence on uh, the George C. Scott character, General Turgenson. I mean, he, you know, if you even look at pictures, Kubrick's not really pulling a lot of punches here. I mean, he, you know, the whole Felix cigar that Ripper's got, that's how LeMay is pretty much depicted in every picture you see of him, right? Okay, so he's not really trying very hard to even cover this up. And that kind of gets into one of the more fascinating aspects of psychological warfare to my mind, which is how these different factions of elites have used it against the American public for their own agendas, right? Because on the one hand, you have the Pentagon effectively doing this massive push through groups like the John Birch Society trying to push the United States into a much more widespread war in the mid-60s. And then mm -hmm. conversely, you have this group of actors, filmmakers around Kirk Douglas with Stanley Kubrick being at the forefront. Another one was John Frankenheimer, of course, who directed The uh, Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in May, Seconds. And, you know, these guys are being used, on the other hand, by sort of the, um, the Anglo-American establishment, if you will, to go out and out some of the stuff that the Pentagon is doing. So it's just fascinating to see all of that playing out in the 60s, right? What about the producers, though, the Hollywood producers? You know, everybody associates films with the director, but a lot of times it's the producers and, you know, the Hollywood establishment that could be behind some of these things, hiring the director, hiring the producers. I mean, Why do you think work. Kubrick was so gung-ho to become a producer, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, no, well, the whole thing about that is actually really interesting, too, because this is, like, right after Kubrick had dissolved his partnership with James B. Harris, who was the producer in his early films up through Lolita. It's interesting because also it's come out recently that Harris probably raped Sue Wine during the production of Lolita. Oh, so, oh my God. 
Kubrick, of course, dissolved the partnership right afterward and became fanatical about becoming producer himself and having total control of his films. But yeah, that's very true with the importance of producers. And this is why you see certain ones showing up in a lot of these kind of sticky uh, circumstances. I mean, one is, of course, Robert Evans, who everybody kind of knows a lot about now. But another guy who is really interesting in this context is a guy I write about quite extensively in the art, and that is Bert Snyder. And Bert Snyder is one of the most important producers in the history of Hollywood. I mean, he pretty much redefined the industry in the late 60s with a little movie called Easy Rider. Mm. Okay. He basically took uh, a formula from the exploitation film, in this case, the biker movie. He used the lax uh, production codes to bring in a lot of drugs and sex. He brought in some counterculture ethos and all this other stuff. And he took a movie that I think was made for gosh, I think only a couple of hundred thousand dollars and turned it into a major box office bonanza. I think it made like 70 million on its first run and adjusted for inflation. That's probably almost half a billion dollars, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a movie that would have been made for roughly equivalent, maybe 10, 15 million dollars in today's dollars. It makes like half a billion dollars. Suddenly everybody wanted a piece of that okay it was huge so snyder became the hottest producer in the industry at that point in fact really robert evans i mean more or less was set up i think at least in my opinion at paramount to be their version of bert snyder and he was even using a lot of bert's uh, people including his brother on a lot of his productions but bert had set up bbs originally he had gotten into the industry by running the monkeys uh the tv show from that and then from there he uh <laughs> did the movie Head with Bob Raffleson and a young screenwriter named Jack Nicholson, who subsequently got a big part in Easy Rider, and that was really where he became a star from. And Nicholson was the big guy for BBS. The next movie that they did that was a big hit was Five Easy Pieces that Raffleson uh, directed, and then, of course, they ended up with The Last Picture Show. And this really created the whole climate of indie films in Hollywood as we know it. Okay, this was huge. So... At the um, around the early 1970s, Bert Snyder became really, really, really politically active, and um, he started funding a lot of different groups. Okay, so the big one were the Black Panthers, and he was really close to um, Huey. Was it Huey Lewis? No, I'm thinking of Huey Lewis. Huey Newton. Huey Newton who was uh, one of the big figures in the Panthers. And it also seems quite likely that not only was Snyder a very good friend of Newton, but they were also lovers on the side. Newton apparently Mm. wanted to spend time with Snyder rather than his life when he finally got out of prison in the late 80s. Um, so, So anyway... Bert Snyder is this big Hollywood producer who effectively became the major financial backer of the Panthers. And then on top of that, he was also a big supporter of the Yippies, the whole movement with Abby Hoffman and all these other guys. So in the early 1970s, he befriends Daniel Ellsberg uh, right after he's done the Pentagon Papers. And he ends up using Ellsberg as the basis for his documentary, Hearts and Minds, which won a bunch of Oscars. In fact, uh, Snyder famously got up at the Oscar ceremony and read a thank you note from the North Vietnamese embassy that they had sent to him for all the help (laughs) they contributed to them prevailing in the Vietnam War. And I think it actually started a fist fight at the Oscars, too. I think John Wayne decked somebody. (laughs) But um, So anyway, here's where it gets really interesting with all of that. Daniel Ellsberg was in Vietnam, right? Who did he serve Mm. under? Served under Edward Lansdale. 
Mm. And Ellsberg, as wow. recently as 2018, told Tom Boot or Max Boot that he loved uh, L. Lansdale, that he was a part of the cult of Edward Lansdale. That was the actual word he used, the cult, cult of Edward Lansdale. They continued to have a friendship for years afterwards, pretty much up to the time of Lansdale's death. So you have this veteran operator who has one of his lackeys, who was big and Rand, who was big in all this nuclear theory and what have you, who's then upon his mentor being drummed out of the national security circles in 68, turns around, becomes this big peacenik, leaks the Pentagon papers, starts befriending all these people in the SDS and what have you, and then latches on to the hottest producer in Hollywood, the guy who's driving the whole counterculture flourish into Hollywood, and also happens to be massively flooding the Black Panthers, the Yippies. And again, Edward Lansdale is a guy who specializes in counterinsurgency, <laughs> using uh, indigenous groups specifically to carry out counterinsurgency efforts in the country in question. So it's a lot like the kind of formula that he uses in his counterinsurgency programs overseas, right? right. And then Lansdale starts latching on to all these other um, interesting people. For instance, take Alfred McCoy, the guy who wrote The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. This was the first scholarly account of the CIA involved in trafficking heroin. Who was his source for this initially? It was Edward Lansdale. Edward Lansdale even told McCoy where to go to in Laos to see the CIA trafficking heroin. Okay. And so he's basically managing all of these quote unquote alternative and whistleblowers and all this other stuff in the early 70s. And it's just fascinating when you consider that this guy is a counterinsurgency specialist and he's even willing to do stuff like this, like outing the CIA's drug trafficking. <laughs> to effectively, in my opinion, control this movement of whistleblowers. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. What a tangled web. And I think that's the point, isn't it, Stephen? You have uh, in the post-war or in the modern times, you obviously, like you said, you said very well, you've got this war between uh, East and West, Russia and the United States, and you, it has to be in the shadows it can't be an all-out thing at the same time how to deal with our population must have changed because we live in a time of democracy where the idea we can't just strongman our populations we can threaten them and you also live in a post-war era where the average citizen has much more money there's mass media so it makes sense that the government the powers that be have to put a lot more money and resource into subtly controlling the population right propaganda um, using mass media in the right way all that stuff to keep everybody to keep us asleep 
Well, yeah, effectively. And I mean, Lansdale's going even further with that, like I you know, was kind of indicating before with all the ARPA stuff, right? So on top of everything else, and, you know, again, by the late 60s, early 70s, uh, this is by the time that they've started to launch Project Camelot in ARPA, which was basically a full-blown effort to try to start doing data mining on the American public, right? And offer in their own predictive models, the same stuff that we have been doing overseas, so you do see just this really massive push by the late 60s, early 70s, because like you're saying, you know, you're coming into a time where uh, people in the United States had enjoyed unparalleled economic prosperity. They had enjoyed unparalleled access to education, to higher education, especially the amount of college graduates skyrocketed. And this was, you know, also, frankly, before we really started destroying our education system as well. So <laughs> on average, yes, I mean, people were a lot more savvy back then. Right. So, yeah, you needed uh, new ways effectively to control the population as you went forward. And I mean, again, there was just a lot of, I think, infiltration of these different alternative scenes, maybe even more so that it existed before then to try and um, really, I think, signal or try to uh, try to put this essentially try to target the people who could be really problematic to the broader hierarchy people who are intellectually gifted who are creative artists i mean that kind of thing yeah college professors oh yeah the usual suspects for this minority report continual world yeah for everybody we got steven snyder if you have any questions this is your chance please super chat him any super chats for, on our end vans not so far. Well, we have super chats, but they don't have questions attached. We got Chester, and who else do we have? Um, also, Steve Hill, I believe. There you go. Let me put them on the yeah. screen. Thank you very much for your support. Definitely yeah. appreciate it. Keeps the lights of the Pleroma going, uh, especially in these, yeah, whenever today they really have ramped up the PSYOPs. Do you think uh, they're shenanigans are falling apart uh steven they can't get a hold of the of the narration of what they want they don't it seems that they don't seem to be on top of it if you know what i mean well i think a lot of it is as much with the breakdown of um the sort of ruling hierarchy i mean you're seeing more and more groups that are trying to unleash their own narratives and then it's being met with counter narratives and so forth but yeah it also seems like more broadly speaking whereas the obsession i think more so during the cold war was to try to craft an American public that had more of a unified opinion on things. It seems like increasingly going into the 21st century, we've been trying to polarize the public as much as we possibly can. You know, we want everybody to become so militant politically, socially on every kind of issue now. Uh, whereas I think that, um, you know, like in, during the Cold War, there was really this obsession with kind of having everybody maybe a bit in the center right politically, Rockefeller Republicanism, so to speak. Uh, whereas now it's just sort of like, you know, we're throwing out one extreme on the left, one extreme on the right. And it's just become this absolute clown show where, uh, you know, you have to fall into one camp or other. And, you know, if you are in an opposing camp, you know, you can't even have any kind of civil discourse or anything. Oh, indeed. It's quite crazy. Yeah, and of course, back then you had uh, a lot of gatekeepers, and I'm glad you brought up William F. Buckley, because 
the guy acts like he's some sort of enlightened Republican uh, light exemplar. But I think you, it's coming out. He was pretty nefarious. He was really working for the powers that be in a lot of times. And he would not, he wanted to sterilize the Republican party. He wanted to make it safe, you know, uh, not populist and not let, and just keep it a certain way. Right, Stephen? Well, actually, no, it's kind of funny because Buckley actually was a big backer of the Birchers behind the scenes. It oh, was he was? Like, I thought he was. Yeah, yeah. No, they tried to like depict <laughs> Buckley as being the, you know, the sort of voice uh, of reason in the Republican. Yeah, but no, yeah. they were all working behind the scenes uh, effectively uh, with the Birchers during the Goldwater campaign and up to that point. No, it's kind of interesting. I just I think eventually, though, like I was saying before, there became so much concern about the Birchers, uh, because that was, it became a big movement around 64, 65. People don't, you know, really appreciate that, but they had, you know, close to several million members, I believe, at yeah. that point in time. Uh, and incidentally, this is like right around the time when Robert Welsh starts to talk about the Bavarian Illuminati. <laughs> so, which is essentially what really drove the membership into the ground, right? So I, that's one of the things I kind of explore in the book is whether or not, um, the Birchers have basically been so successful that they wanted Welch to take a dive because they were really becoming concerned about where he might push the country to. <laughs> so, yeah, suddenly, I mean, now it all becomes like uh, from the, you know, stuff that was more plausible, like, right, the gold standard or things like that. Uh -huh. Just No, it's actually been this century spanning conspiracy theory with the Bavarian Illuminati and all this other stuff. <laughs> well, how about the speaking of the Birchers? How about the KGB papers that pretty much exposed the, that the things that Russia was saying in the '60s that they would subvert us? And so John Birch on one side, the Russians on the other side, you know, polluting the society, undermining the democracy, using its uh, freedom against it. Uh, what's your opinion on that? Well, it's definitely advanced even more. Um, and I mean, I think that that really, I mean, a lot of these efforts sort of laid the foundation for what we think of now as the, the soft coup or the velvet coup or the color revolution uh, and that kind of thing. But yeah, it's really created a devastating state of affairs because when you look at the countries that exist now that are outside the essentially uh, domination of the U.S. and NATO, it's Russia, it's Iran, it's the PRC, which these are authoritarian countries. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's really the sad state of affairs that we've reached with all of this, that effectively to have a country that is independent of the U.S. and NATO, you can't have a democracy because we've become so adept at subverting democracy that it's basically become a tool of staging a coup. Right. And you see this time and again with the was it the Rose Revolution that they had in Georgia, with the Orange Revolution that you had in Ukraine. And I mean, again, you know, whenever the Russians or some of these other countries talk about this, the media tries to depict them as being insane or something to that effect. But I mean, there is a lot of legitimacy to that. I mean, of course, we've always tried to manage democracy to a certain extent, uh, going all the way back really to the Second World War. You can look at, say, the Italian elections where we had intervened to try to tip the scales away from the Communist Party. But going into the late 90s and early noughts and also with the rise of social media, it just got to the point where um, 
we were using democracy, pushing countries to adopt democracy so that we could go in and use that to install whatever flaky or whatever flunky that we could find to put in there to run the country. And just look at what it's done to a place like Ukraine. I mean, it's I mean, obviously, it always had a lot of issues with corruption, but it just turned it into a full blown gangster state uh, by the knots. And I mean, this is really true of most of the other countries like that. And this is. To me, this is one of the just most sickening aspects of all of this is really we've we've discredited democracy globally throughout the developing world by doing this. And it really has convinced a lot of people that you do need some kind of authoritarian government. It's just it's tragic. It's sickening. It's disgusting. Yeah, I mean, you look at the government of Afghanistan before it fell. That was a joke. Iraq. Yeah, like you said, anywhere we go, we just put these uh puppet regimes these puppets yeah. that just work for our corporate overlords and then i mean the msn here will talk about how democracy is becoming discredited around the world so why do you think that is do you not <laughs> notice that almost every freaking regime that we put up in the 21st century forward is a glorified gangster state so I, you know, I mean, if you're in the developing world and you're looking at this, I mean, kind of <laughs> give me a dictator. For, give me a dictator. <laughs> yeah, you can kind of excuse them for thinking, well, maybe democracy isn't all it's cracked up to be after all. Like, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Agreed, a hundred percent. Yes, and it's the threat of democracy is not people saying mean things on social media or having riots in Washington DC it's uh it's our own uh our own government that's giving democracy a bad name so and um another thing you talk about too which is very interesting so many interesting things Stephen but you talk about Jacques Vallée how you think uh, he might have been manipulated by certain powers to uh get certain messages out yeah, well, that was one of the interesting things that I had uh, started to look at in the research, because um, within the national security state, um, one of the big uh, concerns that we had with UFO reports was how it would affect our air defense system, right, in the mm-hmm. event of a nuclear exchange. Uh, so it's kind of interesting in the 1960s, uh, Valet was collaborating with some of the Russian scientists in uh, looking into the UFO question. And um, they had essentially enabled the Russian government to start accepting UFO reports. And this was just an absolute disaster for the Russians because of how their military is structured. Because, again, we had concerns about how our air defense would respond with reports of UFOs, but our whole command structure was much more decentralized. You actually had officers on the ground who could make decisions, whereas in the Soviet Union at the time, and probably still to this day, all the decisions had to be funneled up to the top, right? Right. You know, you just couldn't have like a guy, you know, I mean, a colonel or something like that deciding. It had to be a senior officer. So when the Russians started accepting these UFO reports, what U.S. what U.S. policymakers have been concerned about happening here actually happened in Russia. Their air defense was totally overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a period there where if the U.S. had launched a first strike against the Russians, they would not have been able to retaliate. Wow. So this is kind of an interesting thing of all the stuff that we did in the Cold War. It was actually UFO reports 
that gave us the best opportunity to totally obliterate the Soviet Union. Because there was that, you know, sort of sweet spot where we could have launched a strike against them. And because they were dealing with all these UFO reports, they would not have been able to do anything really in response to it. Wow. What year was this? This would have been around 1966, 67. Okay. All right. So you can imagine like once that happened, um, the Russians were no longer interested in UFO reports after that. (laughs) (laughs) So they put the kibosh on that real quick. But I mean, again, this is where people, you know, I mean, to a lot of normies, it seems sort of far out that, uh, you know, the intelligence services would be so interested in things like UFOs. But if you just think of it from that perspective alone, you could totally overwhelm Russia's air defense system and thus destroy the country. Why wouldn't they be interested in that? It's a major advantage in the war. So, yeah, still is. My God. Yeah. What's going on now then with all this um, supposed interest of the government in UFOs, which, by the way, is only like ex government officials and so forth, and they're not interested in any other <laughs> people that are watching UFOs that aren't no. government related? Yeah. Well, again, it's interesting. It gets, you know, a guy um, who has been really central to all this is a guy I wrote write about in the book, Christopher Mellon of uh, the notorious Mellon family. And again, he was a part of this whole clique of officers around uh, General Edward Lansdale in the 1980s that essentially led to the creation of uh, what we think of now as the Joint Special Operations Command and the Special Operations Command at the, uh, the Pentagon level. And Mellon, they actually wanted him to head the Special Operations Command at one point, uh, but he ended up uh, going into the Pentagon directly, doing some different uh, jobs for them in the 90s during the Clinton years. And one of them was working in information operations as well. So, yeah, it's really interesting that he's become such a central figure into the Stars Academy and some of these other groups. But given the role that I think the UFOs really did play in psychological warfare operations, I don't think that it's surprising that you see this renewed push for disclosure right now. I mean, especially since there is the real possibility that the great powers might be, um, you know, rolling out some of these futuristic weapons and so forth. So, yeah, you got to wonder about uh, how much of this is being done with deception. And then you get into just some of the bizarre stuff like the, what was it, the Chinese weather balloon or something. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 2023 has just been such a weird year that, like, something like that happens and you forget about it, you know, like a couple of months later. Like,. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's that's the other thing. Yeah, the next big thing, everybody forgets about everything. I was, I was thinking, God, Zelensky must be sitting there just pissed off because no cameras are on him or anything. All the attention has gone away, and eventually there'll be something else that'll bring in the attention. That's how it's. It's just one thing after the other, but they're all kind of predictable. That's why I still think you still have. What's left in their playbook, Stephen? Yeah, tactical nukes, uh, an entire grid being hacked. I mean, there's not that much in the you know screenplay of the Archons of what they can do, right? Surprise us to control us. Alien yeah. invasion. <laughs> well, then, yeah. yeah. If there is, at this yeah. point, I don't even know how effective like the whole alien invasion. <laughs> we would just lock our doors and watch TV, like just. <laughs> <clears throat> 
Well, I mean, also, too, you know, with all the, I mean, with the fact that everybody has, like, a camera now from their smartphones and what have you, I mean, it's, you know, this isn't like even 30 or something years ago where you could claim that, you know, the the aliens were invading X city or something like that. Unless you really lived in the surrounding area, you wouldn't be able to confirm that. Whereas now, I mean, I can walk out with, like, a cell phone and, like, did you see any aliens out here? Like, (laughs) you know... (laughs) Or just, I mean, the whole notion, too, of what for years, like what we had to, uh, we couldn't reveal the existence of aliens to the public because it would lead to a societal breakdown. Oh, Brookings report. Yeah. See, that might have been true like 50 or 60 years ago. But if the government came out now and acknowledged that aliens are real, I think most people just know that. I think so, too. I mean, it's, it's almost not. I mean, yeah, it's. It's just fascinating to see like how far we've even advanced in that regard with how the whole alien thing. I mean, it's just they've been playing it up so much this year. Nobody even seems to care. It's just become passe effectively. Well, even if they did, you know, half of the population wouldn't even believe the government. They're like, no, we don't believe it. This is some sort of scam or something like that. So that's the other problem is that. The government, as we're talking, has, has done such a bad job in trust, not just with other countries, Stephen, but our own population. It's, well, even almost... like the old saying, uh, never believe something unless it's been officially denied by the government. That's more truer than ever. Well, I mean, it's like they're almost trying to even, I mean, acknowledge the fact that, I mean, everything has become falsified. I mean, I thought that it was just so interesting that um, SOCOM had basically come out a couple of months ago and acknowledged that they were going to start looking into the use of uh, deep fake technology for psychological warfare purposes. And they come out and say that they're going to start looking into that. That's basically, uh, yeah, we're already doing deep right. fake but I mean, this is like where it gets so just otherworldly now. I mean, then, you know, conversely, we talk about like the other states that played this. Well, look at the Russians and the whole thing with Prigozhin, right? I mean, I just love the whole saga of this, like whether or not he's alive or dead. You've already seen kind of a use of deep fake technology to kind of uh, depict him as still being alive afterwards. And based on like what I witnessed, because I was at the um, the Captain Nations conference not long after Prigozhin was supposed supposedly assassinated in july and when i could tell the russians have really pulled the wool over everybody's eyes over here as to what went down with all of that i mean there were multiple theories put forward everybody just seemed genuinely just taken aback by like what was going on with that whole scenario and i mean it almost begs the question i mean is proposing himself i mean a character i mean this was a guy almost nobody had ever heard of to about like 2018 or something like that. And then suddenly you have Putin's quote unquote chef who's emerged now as this major uh, mercenary intelligence operator with all this other stuff. I mean, it does beg the question, was this guy even a character that had been concocted from the beginning for this purpose? <laughs> yeah, you never know. Man, we need we need Kubrick's director director skills more than ever. It seems, man, and uh, yeah, I think I, there's a is there a chat by someone? I saw somebody. There you go. I guess Chester is asking: <clears throat> Are there any entities, orgs slash collectives that are known to be left hand path oriented and that have actual power impact capability over the current 
geopolitical landscape. What do you think, Stephen? Obviously, Epstein's and Ghislaine uh, Maxwell were into Thelema and Atlantis and all that. That's the one I can think of the top of my head. What about you? Michael Aquino. I mean, he did found the Temple of Seth. Um, I mean, I would say that he was definitely surfing the same currents of what uh, Lansdale and some of his acolytes were doing. And again, this was something that, I mean, I couldn't prove uh, definitively uh, with the research that I was doing, but just looking at some of the the letters that Lansdale had in his collection at Hoover, specifically the ones from Charles Bohannon, who was the guy who really helped Lansdale with a lot of his counterinsurgency efforts going back to the Philippines. Uh, but Bohannon is a really interesting guy. He was actually a Harvard-trained anthropologist. Uh, he worked with the Smithsonian and all this other stuff before he got into the counterinsurgency racket with Lansdale. But these letters write that he's sending to Lansdale. He always notes that he's a 32nd degree Freemason on it, all this other stuff. But then he also has just these drawings that he did of all seeing eyes and all of these other weird symbols on all of the letters. So it's kind of this other aspect of this, you know, it makes you wonder just how uh, how involved these guys really were in some of these kind of secretive orders. Of course, like I was saying later, you know, within a generation or so, you have people like Aquino who are active in um, aspects of the Phoenix program, psychological operations like Wandering Souls, which was something that was based on things that Lansdale was doing in the Philippines. You see him after he gets out of the army going into the Church of Satan and then setting up the Temple of Set. Um, I mean, if they're not involved in some kind of left-hand path order, they're certainly creating them. And I mean, that gets into even more contemporary groups like the Order of Nine Angles. Um, I mean, there's some pretty compelling evidence that's come out that the, uh, the founder, um, I can't remember the guy's name now off the top of my head, but he seems to have been involved in a British group in the early 70s that was a part of the Gladio network oh, wow. uh, that was active in the UK, you know, which is, again, this sort of paramilitary stay behind group, um, which, you know, again, it seems like we had the same stuff here in the United States or some of these, uh, you know, kind of far right groups. But probably, you know, also it wouldn't surprise me if they were using some of these left hand path groups for this as well. But, yeah, I do think that with things like the Order of Nine Angle with um, the Temple of Set, you definitely see uh, the influence of the national security circles behind some of these groups. And, you know, when you look at some of the things that the ONA has been involved in in recent years, you could see how potentially these groups could be used for domestic terror campaigns, for psychological operations. And in hell, I mean, you even have the... The bizarre thing with the kitty porn coming up recently on Discord and whatnot that they've been linked to. So, yeah, I mean, there, oh, wow. there's some very disturbing implications with this. Curiouser and curiouser. And for the audience, too, uh, a reminder that uh, Stephen gave a great uh, presentation at uh, Astronosis to Meet the Archon. So you can download it. There's a link. And again, when you do his presentation, with Chris Knowles' presentation, even Mitch Horowitz talking about how all, you know, the elite will tap into the supernatural stuff, but they'll get the scientists to tell us it's all bunk. 
again, it's part of the game they play. You know, we'll use mysticism, but you don't. But with Mitch's and Chris and uh, Stevens, you really get a good holistic overview of what they're doing and what's going from the Star Lord to what Steven talks about to magic to the suppression of any good uh, parapsychology for the for the masses to understand it's it's quite a rabbit hole. So I would definitely highly check that out. And yes, uh, next week I'll be in. Looks like uh, yeah, putting everything together to be in Graceland to go there, uh, pay my dues, and uh, do a little bit more research on the king. I hope I see Stephen there. We might end up at the crossroads or somewhere strange like that. But if you're there, check us out. What day were you going to be getting there? Probably first or second. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. After yeah. Halloween, Halloween is so holy with the kids. All right. Well, I'll be, yeah, I'll be getting into Tennessee on the second. So yeah, I could definitely swing over to Graceland and I'll give you a shout out. Yeah. Yeah. We'll figure it out. It, it always works out with these things. <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've got to figure things, uh, some travel arrangements there. My wife has given me permission. So I'll go down there with a camera, look at some of Elvis occult books. Hopefully I can sneak in some of those, take some pictures, <clears throat> set up some interviews and yeah, just, uh, Maybe we can go swimming where Jeff Buckley swam there, Steve. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we got to get a freaking Elvis sandwich, too. I got to like look into like where we can find the best Elvis sandwich in Memphis. I'm sure there's plenty of those. So we'll check it out. It will be fun. So uh, that's what's going on. And, yeah, appreciate uh, the uh, super chats and everything else. Uh, any last questions, Vance? Oh, nothing that wouldn't take us another hour to go through. Yeah. <laughs> like Elvis, was he uh, part of the conspiracy, you know? Stephen and I <laughs> talked about that in his podcast. So His we, involvement we... with the government and the FBI and all that. But I guess we'll have to leave that for another show. Yeah, yeah. I could go on for that for an hour. Myself and his, rela- his uh, prickly relationship with John Lennon and all the other good stuff. Yeah, I've got all of that in the book. So that's another matter. I guess, to, is there anything you want the audience to know about your book before we go or to mention? Because, again, your book is 300 pages, and it is just full of good data. And sometimes I love your little jokes here and there. They're great, uh, even how you end your book. Are you serious? It's like setting us up for the next one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was definitely a labor of love, to put it mildly. As I've, I've got to said before, I literally had to cross across the entire country uh, to do this research. I'm based out of the D.C. area. I ended up in San Francisco and Hoover so I could go through the Stanford archives. I went to the archives in Carlisle. I had people going through archives all over the country for me. So there was a tremendous amount of research that was involved in this. And a lot of this is original. Um, You're going to find a lot of stories in here effectively that have never been told. Mm -hmm. And I was even aided uh, as well, being able to interview certain people. I mean, just alone, the stuff that I think I was able to uncover with Bert Snyder, if you're into sort of weird, dark Hollywood stuff, I thought was a goldmine. Because again, this just isn't a guy that there's really been a lot of work done on, even though, 
Um, you know, there have definitely been some indications that he was a big player before. I mean, for instance, if you've ever seen uh, The Limey, the great Steven Sodenberger film, the uh, mm. producer and it played by Peter Fonda is actually based on Bert Snyder. And Peter Fonda, no, he was an easy writer, so he knew Bert quite well. But um, and again, I'm I'm going to get even crazier with this going into the second book, which is really going to trace uh, the history of uh, this sort of curious art through Rosicrucianism going into the Fordian Society, the White Chapel Club, all the way up through Discordians. And um, it's going to end with really an in-depth examination of uh, some very uh, notorious serial killers. Yeah, because again, it's the old, uh, as we've learned, the cults are all connected to the deep state. So are the serial killers. There's so much overlap. Uh, it's hard to tell when this again, this octopus or this hydra ends or begins. It's like they got their, they got their claws into everything. It's amazing, but it's nice to see people like you uh, disentangling and giving us a, a nice path. Uh, any, whether did you have any big surprises with this book or pleasant surprises while you were doing research? <laughs> I don't know if there would be any pleasant surprises per se, but um, <laughs> you found somebody I, wasn't a dick or something. You know, one of the nuttiest things I found in Lansdale's archives were these letters from I think her name was Ruth Kushner, if I remember correctly. But uh, she uh, became pretty prominent in the 70s um, because of her stance on cancer. She was first a big advocate for breast cancer awareness, and then later she was really opposed to uh, chemotherapy. But she had started out as a journalist, but um, I got into some of Lansdale's documents and she had become a pretty good friend of his in the late 1960s. And oh, okay, so Lansdale has like all of these documents. I went through tons of them and some of them had been suppressed where they had been taken out of the archives. A lot of them were related to Daniel Ellsberg, but the most of them that had been suppressed were the ones to this Rose Kushner woman. And specifically, this had to do with some kind of uh, psychological proposal that she had made to Lansdale using behavior science to manage his counterinsurgency operations in Vietnam. And she had actually gotten recommendations from her proposal from people like B.F. Skinner, okay, oh, the wow. famous behavioral scientist. She had all these people from like the University of Utah writing Lansdale letters like saying, yes, Mrs. Kushner's theories have a lot of merit in how they could be applied to counterinsurgency. And I really want to know what she was suggesting to him, but they've <laughs> taken all this stuff out of the archive. And I was just like, what is it that she was proposing that they're still trying to cover up like 40 or 50 years later? Oh Why? Because like I said, this, you know, she, I mean, not to say that she wasn't a brilliant woman, but, you know, again, she was mostly involved with journalism and then later with, uh, you know, cancer awareness and stuff like that. So it's this is just one of the straight up weirdest things that I was not at all expecting to find. <laughs> It's just one of these people, like, how is she involved with these characters? And specifically from what seems to be related to mind control. Uh, <laughs> the, the key is in her name, Rose A. Kushner. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of that. Yeah, Rossi Kushner. Yeah, this is an interesting point. I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> yeah. You wonder. All I can say is curiouser and curiouser. I got to lean on the old uh, Alice in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll. 
The one thing I want to know is what's keeping Henry Kissinger alive? That's a good question, man. It seems like the, the evil are always blessed with unnaturally long lives. I mean, what David Rockefeller was like 101 or something like that, right? When he finally died. So the baby oh, Keith, <laughs> Keith Richards obviously made a deal with the devil, so he's fine. <laughs> Uh, curiouser and curiouser. Well, we are at the end. Yeah, really appreciate the support from the super chats. Glad uh, everybody's people I knew were in the chat. Hope you enjoyed yourself. Great discussion with Stephen on the art, the secret history of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality book one. Always a great conversation. Vance, thanks for keeping us company on this conspiracy. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah exactly they're coming to take me away ha ha they're coming oh it's always it's away. always fun not surprised at how yeah. complicated yeah, yeah i agreed i feel well, old Steve... though, because i i'm always used i'm always used to the standard old the you know, rosicrucians and you know uh, not the rosicrucians the uh the, the uh, rothschilds and all these other guys that we used to talk about conspiracy theories but there's so many more to choose from now yeah, and now you've got the Clintons, Epstein's, Gates. Yeah, you got a whole new uh, generation of, murders, of evil. You know. Yeah, of evil. You know, and then the other thing, too, that I think that I sort of took away with optimism with this, ironically, was just the fact that I had found that, you know, there was such a profound power in art which is something that I never really realized, but it is such a major conduit for magic. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, when you talk about communing with the divine, I think the purest ways to that are through dreams, through synchronicities, and through the practicing of art. And this is something that um, the archons, or whatever you want to call it here on Earth, have definitely taken advantage of. And... You know, this is a tragedy, but on the flip side of the coin, it also provides a way out, which is the fact that we have to take back the storytelling and begin telling our own stories. You know, I mean, it really fundamentally goes back to what abracadabra actually means. As I speak, I create. Mm -hmm. So we are all creators. You know, uh, Miguel and I, you know, you and I specifically have been doing a lot of our own creation lately. And that, you know, had really driven home to me what uh, I was doing was important in a sense. What Chris is doing is tremendously important. What you're doing is tremendously important. What Gordon is doing and Mitch are doing is all tremendously important. Because in our own way, we are storytellers as well. And we are putting our own narratives out there that will hopefully make the world a better place. And fundamentally, that is what we have to do. We have to change the narrative. Beautifully said, and I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and of course, from uh, Astronosis, James True and his ideas of myth and how important they are for the psyche. He bring, he, he makes scientific arguments. But no, beautifully said, and I can't think of a better way to end. So yeah, Stephen, as always, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you for having, me having you back on yeah. again. And uh, of course, I'll see you probably sooner rather than later, either here or there or somewhere in the United States. We'll hang out. <laughs> to everybody else, uh, thank you for being here. Yeah, and on the topic of what Stephen said, I'll simply say, as always, have a good Tuesday. And, uh, yeah, write your own gospel and live your own myth. Create your own myth. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Yep, good night.
special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.